Welcome to Creative Innovators with Gigi Johnson. In this episode, we welcome Sasha Samoshina, who has developed a tremendously unique career journey and a unique career destination. She shares with us what she does at JPL NASA in matching arts and augmented reality and virtual reality into storytelling and immersion for both scientists and engineers, but also regular lay people and even students who'd like to wander through WebVR as if we're wandering through Mars. She shares her story of how she got to this unique job and unique role using the magic of technology and art. She'll share how her story of how she got there is very non-traditional. She'll share how job titles are created and evolved but also how you can keep pushing ahead and asking for that next adventure and that next opportunity. So enjoy this conversation with Sasha, and we'll share a bunch of links where you can get to these resources at the end of the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I work at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is one of 10 NASA centers in the United States. We are the ones that focus on robotic missions to space. So all of the robots flying in space are built and controlled from mission control at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL. So I work there in the Engineering and Science Directorate office, specifically in software planning and execution systems. That's a lot of words. So let me get into <laughs> it, a little. And, and it sounds very nerdy, like like sitting in a small office with a computer nerdy. It is sitting in a small office with a computer nerdy. It's nerdy in a very sort of, I should say, group way. I don't know how to put that really in a, in a, in a togetherness team way. So I'm the deputy lead of a group called the Ops Lab, which is a group of designers and developers that are looking for innovative ways to work with science and engineering, which brings us to a lot of interesting web projects, as well as primarily also augmented reality and virtual reality projects. So working with astronauts, working with scientists and engineers, finding the problems that they have and solving them through software. One of the projects that I lead is called Protospace, which is in that realm of cool ops lab projects. And we create 3D CAD, a 3D CAD visualization system that lets you view really complicated computer-aided design models in full scale using augmented reality technology and the web. So it's a way for people to remotely build their robotic space systems before they machine any part of them and to do a lot of cool things in 3D that you can't do in 2D. And then the third job title, if you're ready for this one, is quite yeah. recent. I actually got it during this quarantine and work at, home, work at home order. So I am also the technical group supervisor of the user interface development group. So those are all of the people in my section that are making front end development work. And so really taking the usability of things and putting it on the forefront of a lot of our people that are using software at JPL. Wait, wait. So do you have three different teams then or there's overlap between all these people? So there is overlap in all of and this is a Venn diagram that, yes, there's overlap, but it's not exactly equal. So a lot of the people in my group are part of the ops lab, but others are not. A lot of 
or all of the people in protospace are part of the ops lab. So it's a bit confusing, but we're all sort of fighting the same fight. So in a way, yes, I would say there's there's more overlap than not overlap, if that makes sense. So I'm going to to try to myth bust a lot of this because you you think, oh, here's this really fascinating woman who has this really interesting, deep sort of tech and human communications job. And you didn't start in tech. Well, let's take you way back to maybe St. <laughs> Petersburg. So you were born in Russia and were you born into a, a technical or artistic family? I was born into a musical family. So both my mom and my dad are quite musical. My mom currently took up seriously singing opera about five years ago and is doing quite well with that. And my father is a trained guitarist and played a lot of rock and roll back in the day in St. Petersburg. He's actually published in a book about rock and roll in that time in St. Petersburg, which is very cool. But by trade, my dad's a civil engineer and my mom is a chemist. My brother, who is six years older than me, is very kind of interested in technology and did end up majoring in computer science in college. So there was kind of this more or less technical side of things, but I would say art sort of ruled the roost in terms of my interest at a very young age. And I drew actually before I even spoke. So I, I started speaking quite late. And so I learned how to draw before I could speak, which I, I knew I could speak. I just was kind of maybe um, doing a social experiment on my parents because it was really fun to see them. I remember seeing them react to things that I got right. And I learned that I could sort of make this happiness happen. Very early memory, but I do recall that that existed in my brain. I guess I had a pretty good balance of both the arts and kind of more technical side of things while growing up. I was really encouraged to express myself through visual art and through music. I started playing piano when I was about six years old and was classically trained throughout my life. My parents sat me down at five and were like, piano or violin? And I was like, huh, I guess piano because you don't have to tune it because my brother <laughs> played cello and that was quite a painful beginning to my childhood of hearing him. I thought it was beautiful, but my parents were like, ooh, stringed instruments. It is a different world. Though they're much easier to carry. They are, yes. You know, I, I moved out of Russia when I was four. We immigrated right before, like during the fall of the Soviet Union, basically. So my dad got us out of Russia to sort of give us the ability to have a life that we could thrive in. And I guess I always kind of felt like the world was my oyster in that way, where I had the ability to be in a place where I could make kind of choices and create this sort of eclectic and interesting future for myself. So that's sort of where the basis of that mindset came from is I was told at a young age that you have possibilities here. So go and seize what you want. So that that left me with a lot of great work kind of, how do you call it? <laughs> Why can't I think of this word? Work ethic? Yes, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, very good work ethic, as well as that left me with kind of a really good forward thinking attitude about what future, what the future could hold and kind of made me a serial optimist, which is great. 
So we talked before we started on the recording about jobs and job titles and stereotypes around jobs. What did the young Sasha think she wanted to do when she grew up? To be honest, there were kind of two worlds that I was really interested in. One was uh, I really wanted to be a librarian. I thought it was very cool that they got to be surrounded by books all day long and that the librarians that helped me in the library would always kind of dive deep into my interests and they knew so much and I was very inspired by that. I also just liked, I just liked the idea of hanging out in the library all the time. And the second path was always to be a teacher. I remember recalling that I wanted to, I don't know if this is a real award or not. I don't think it is. I was like, I'm going to win the best teacher in the world award one year. <laughs> so I don't, I think there might be something like that, but I really, was, that was the goal. National, there's definitely a national one in most countries. I'm not sure if there's a worldwide one. <laughs> well, um, I thought that there was, or well, maybe, I, maybe I just, I didn't even need the award. I was just like, wouldn't it be cool if I inspired and taught enough children that they would think that I was the best teacher, you know? And cause I, I grew up really looking up to a lot of my, my teachers. Those were the kind of the two categories that I was obsessed with at a very early age. So high school for you was an arts time or a tech time or a creative time or? So for me, it was everything. I took, I took high school. I took learning very seriously. Uh, I wish in a way that I would think back on me now telling, you know, 15 year old me to not sweat it so hard because I was very homework obsessed. I was very extra credit obsessed. I was not in a competitive way, just in a way to prove that I know things and I want to learn as much as possible, but in a kind of a stressful way sometimes where I think relaxing and just letting information come to you is a little bit more organic sometimes than trying to stuff it in your head and feel bad if you don't understand everything. But so I was very serious. I took my classes very seriously. And in high school, I, you know, was an international baccalaureate, was taking all of these extra classes to get college credit. And then the plan was probably to go to school for biology. And I was really down that path until about two months or so before we had to apply to college. And then I decided to just apply only to art schools. And that came ah, from... So for, I was going to say that came from what? That came from, so I had to take a zero hour class to be able to take art uh, for my IB, my international baccalaureate classes. And I would come and paint in the studio before anyone was at school at 5.30 a.m. Or maybe it was 5 a.m. It was very early. So I had to take this so I could have a full scale, um, you know, have all of my other credits. And I also could take art. And I just found myself, even when it was that early I lived about 40 minutes away from school that I just was really enjoying this time and my work was growing and the way I was connecting my ideas in my sketchbook with the things I was reading with my life seemed very pertinent to me. It seemed like it was making some kind of feeling inside of me and then just the want to grow inside of my art practice became more important to me than sort of this passion that I was sort of falsely putting myself into in terms of biology. I think I had a big passion for it, but I realized that my bigger passion was to create art. And so I applied to only art schools and I got into all of them. And <laughs> that was insane. 
And my parents were like, what's happening? And I was like, don't worry. I think I know what I'm doing. But the great thing was I did work hard. So I ended up getting scholarships. I ended up getting credits into a lot of my classes because of the work I'd done on the front end for high school. And I ended up going to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which is a wonderful school, which is connected to a museum. So it allows you to sort of have this real world this maybe this dream librarian experience that I was talking about, because they allow you to go through old, you know, archives and books and prints. You can say, oh, I'd like to pull this artist's print from, you know, X year. And you can hold that in your hands with gloves on and actually study these amazing artifacts. And so I actually was admitted for painting. And then after one year of painting realized, oh, no, this is not the way for me and switched to much like you film video new media so that world really opened up doors of how technology can be infused into my art practice how my technological skill could be grown in this sort of artistic way where i was experimenting with video and sound and programming and how all of this could work together in a really conceptual rather than narrative way and it really made me just love the idea of how to communicate and grow understanding through the lens of of film video and sophomore year of my experience at school of the art institute of chicago i got a internship at the Field Museum of Natural History with their environmental and conservation programs. And that was a really amazing way for me to practically take these skills that I was learning and apply them to real world needs of saving Amazonian rainforest for this very small department that was doing this grassroots effort for different communities in the Amazon. And so I was producing animations for them from data um, that they were collecting. I was creating videos of cultures that were underrepresented or not at all represented in any of the records of some of these governments. And those two things, schooling and throughout my schooling, being part of the Field Museum, which I interned at for three years, so more than half of my college career, really grew me into this person that was like, okay. I wanted to do science first, and then I wanted to do art. But there's this thing where it's science communication infused with technology. I like this world. <laughs> it's a unique Venn diagram, right? So it's a it's a space in between that most people don't think about. What year was this? So I started college in 2005. So graduated in 2009. The one unfortunate thing was that... For film school, as I said, it was conceptual. So we weren't really narrative based, which I loved. I was like, I don't want to make movies. I want to make like experiences or, you know, you just just getting really hyper on ideas. But the thing that was weird is that we were just transitioning off off DV tapes onto hard drives, but the hard drives are like super clunky and stuff. So in terms of technology, it was not the best time to be going to school because there was this transition happening that no one really quite understood quite yet. And so you know, half of the stuff was hard drive recorded, half of the stuff was DV tapes, and you sort of had to pick your poison. Storage yes. was expensive. Very expensive. People who produce now and pick up a terabyte drive for not much money at all, uh, that if you were doing video then, I was doing video for early, early YouTube, and you had to really think about where you were storing all these files. <laughs> so stressful. So stressful. <laughs> <laughs> so three years of interning, what was the next adventure? 
So I actually did get hired full-time at the Field Museum after finishing interning there as, at first, a, a continued internship, but with the media department. So this was what the beginning of my, I would say, very bold way of thinking about jobs that I wanted and then doing anything to get those in kind of more of a just a very confident way. So I learned about this. I had actually gone to render some video up in this loft at the Field Museum that was all video people. No one was in there at the time, but they had a computer that could handle what I was doing. And I was like, oh my gosh, like there are other video people here that work in exhibits and they have a team. You know, there was only two people, but I was like more than just me and they are interested (laughs) in this stuff. And I was like, I need to get to these people. So I went to a... They used to have a happy hour in the science classroom on Fridays at the field where you could just go and like hang out with people and sort of, you know, just talk to really interesting folks about what they were working on. And my friend, uh, Greg, who was the head of the media production people, I just walked up to him and I was like, hey, you have that computer that's really powerful up there. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, I rendered some video on it when you weren't around. He was like, okay. And then I said, I really, really, really need to find a job right now. And this is the job that I want. Is there any way that you're hiring? And he said, we we are actually hiring. And I was like, well, then I would like to apply. And I gave him my business card with my website and sort of just walked away and was like, I hope that works. And he emailed me and was like, your resume looks great. Your website's insane. It was very insane at the time. And so I was brought on and I was very thankful for my boldness in that situation where (laughs) I just sort of marched right up to him. And And then that began kind of I think a more even robust way of, you know, working with a small team, we were designing exhibits. And so we put all of the media in any exhibit that happened at the Field Museum. So it wasn't only learning and understanding what the scientists were studying, but then working with curators as well as scientists to take those things and make them accessible to the public in a digestible way. And you can imagine some of those conversations being hard where someone spent 30 years, you know, studying a certain subject and you're saying, I'm going to put this in a one minute video and them being like, how dare you say that? But then proving to them that you can do this in a really fun way, which involves touch screens and more tactile sort of ways for the visitors to also grow and support these sorts of ideas in the future. So I would say as a first career, I couldn't think of anything more fulfilling. And I just always stress to everyone that's younger, or if you're in college or going to go to college, or even if you're not planning to go and you have some place that you want to be in, I would say intern or somehow get involved with volunteering with that work because because of that field museum internship, I think that is what opened my mind up to a job being more than just a job. A job being something that can affect the world through this skill that I was learning. And I didn't really make that connection until I had my experience there. And so interning and volunteering for places that you love is incredibly important to kind of grow not only your passion, but sort of make sense of where you fit in if you don't necessarily And who does anymore fit into any of the, you know, just one box of interests? 
So you found that job from looking around from the job at the same place to see where you wanted to go. What was your next shift? My next shift was moving to New York and working in web design and development, as well as doing freelance video editing and working on some shorts of my own. So I see that part of my life as very much understanding the kind of the ever-evolving software process where it was a small group of designers and developers. I was helping to kind of project manage a lot of the projects and understanding how different clients work. We worked with people in the arts. We worked with people in fashion. We worked with people in sciences. And so just kind of a more rapid way of working and through just web. So really taught me how to be more agile, obviously, in in the way that a process happens. Uh, I would say that process became really important just because of the amount of people we were sort of making websites for and how quickly we needed to do them based on content. And I, I saw that as a very practical skill. So just just understanding that language so much better and being immersed in in the web very, very kind of, and understanding the frustrations of working in that realm, as well as the positives of working in that realm. And I did that for about three years. And then I was no longer wanting to live in New York. (laughs) So how did you make that shift from, as you put it, arts, fashion, and sciences to Jet Propulsion Labs, Rover, (laughs) and Mars, and VR, and AR, and all those journeys? How did you make that shift? So I, as I said, New York became too much for me. I didn't think that the quality of life or the amount of room I had to expand was was working for me. So I test, quote unquote, test moved to Los Angeles for six months, and I've been here now for six years. So that I lied when I said I was going to come back after six months, I guess. So I moved here with the intent of trying to grow kind of maybe the editing career a little bit more and being more involved in in the arts somehow or maybe in a museum again. And I, I freelanced at first again for the Field Museum. They had this um, a huge amount of work that was perfect for me to work on while I was just here and settling in. And then I actually worked for another person that I walked up to and asked for a job uh, was for a production company called Absolutely Productions. And I became their digital media manager. So I, again, kind of saw this opportunity to take web-based things and mix them with kind of being the head of the voice of the production company in terms of working with other networks like IFC and Comedy Central and with kind of seeing how a production side of a show works, programming their websites, creating all of their merch, you know, planning all of their sort of live events and things like that. Um, Really good at growing practical skills, as I said, but also realized that the Hollywood world isn't really where my passion is. So I became very kind of stagnant and it felt a bit repetitive to to make content for shows that were on television and that maybe didn't have a longer standing sort of humanitarian outlook. And that's something that I look for in a job. So I saw posting for a JPL position in communications on LinkedIn. And I was like, 
I'd always been obsessed with with JPL simply because of the strange beginnings of of how that lab became a lab, which I can get into another time where you should definitely look it up. The story is awesome. Being part of, you know, robotic operations and thinking about how to even understand some of the missions that are happening was really exciting to me. So I just blindly, I applied to the job. And six months later, I got a call back. And it was, had been long enough that I forgot. I mean, I didn't forget, but sort of like, who is this? And they were like, are you available for a phone interview on Monday? And I was like, oh, I thought that you had forgotten about me, but uh, apparently not. <laughs> yeah, okay. you, We're a federally funded research and development facility. Things take some time. It's bureaucratic. There's paperwork. And so on that, it was a fast track to sort of getting the position. And I was you know, what one of the interviewers said to me was, your resume is so weird that we had Thank to you meet you. <laughs> we, we had to meet you because it's, 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 there's so much really, there's so much interesting work on here, but you know, the story is not, not really what you see on a resume all the time. And so I felt very of that. I was like, I like being strange. I like being a little bit different. And so that's really the world that is. So it was in communications. It was a combination of social media work for a lot of the larger channels at JPL, as well as creating, helping to create videos and content to sort of, I see it as educating the public, which is something that NASA does. That's something that's written into NASA's charter. JPL is funding funded by NASA. So they have this kind of want to give back. And I, I love that. And I love being part of it. Within working in that world, I was really lucky to be a part of a bunch of meetings that we went to uh, in Silicon Valley, where we went to Facebook and YouTube and Google and all of the places and, you know, got to interview people and sort of see how they work and see how we could work more closely on things that were up and coming. And YouTube and Facebook let us know that they were coming out with this 360 tool, which is an which an API that basically automatically will ingest 360 images, equal rectangular images into a 360 degree view. And I was like, cool. I'm stopping you right there. API, for some of our less technical folks in the audience, an API is what? It, it's something that's an interface of a software that lets you have, uh, it basically lets you talk to something without doing anything else. So it's something that automatically does something for you. So in this case, um, you have an image that looks smushed and weird and it's in 360 degrees, it would look normal, but when it's all flattened out, it just looks like a mishmash. And so in this terminology, the application programming interface would automatically fit it into a spherical content and let you kind of look around as a person in the center of of that world. So you could do this more heavily handed with other software that was sort of not really available at the time, but was beginning to sort of get on the cusp. But the big deal about this is when big industry takes a huge feature like this and puts it into their already existing world, that means, you know, for for me at JPL, that also means I don't need to ask for more permission to use new tools. We're already allowed to use these tools. And it's a new feature that will kind of grow the the way that we are able to educate the people that are fans of the pages. 
What I find fascinating and one of the interesting opportunities for you guys over at JPL is that you have some phenomenal, incredibly high, high pixel, high quality content by your mission you need to share. So it, you, you've got great content for people who are fueling a lot of these new technologies who want to play. And so you've yes. been able to be at the play space at the front end because like, here's a great, would you like Mars? <laughs> would you like yeah. here? <laughs> Exactly. And we have this wonderful team that that puts together the scientific images of the, of the eco-rectangular 360 images of a full panorama from Mars from a current mission that's called uh, Mars Science Laboratory, which is the Curiosity rover who is up there doing cool science. And so we already had the content, you know, all we had to do is sort of figure out how to smush it into this new interface to be able to make it work. And so I had the really exciting job of seeing seeing that as a really important, fun thing and spending about... A week, I'd ask for a preview from Facebook and YouTube to send me their stuff so I could start experimenting with how exactly to do this so that when they released this new feature, I mean, we were able, it was happenstance. There was a new panorama, a full panorama, meaning both the rover is imaged and the terrain around the rover is imaged fully. That's not something that we constantly do, just because if you can imagine, that's a lot of data. That's a lot of data transferred down from Mars to Earth. So usually we do things to check if the rover is okay. So image the rover or just image the terrain to see what the terrain looks like. But this was a full panorama. And I was like, oh my gosh. So February 2016, we were able to sort of take this and be one of the first agencies to sort of be on top of releasing an image like this from NASA in this new format where people could be standing in the rover's wheels, basically looking around Mars at this dune. And that's where another click happened in my brain where I was like, immersive, you know, let's do that. This is amazing. I I love figuring out how to get that to all work and let's go further down into the rabbit hole of what else can we do? So I ended up producing about, I think, nine 360s from then on, some more narrative, some not, some just kind of, you know, ethereal with images and really nice sounds to kind of like let you float around in space because who doesn't love doing that? And the next jump within JPL was leaving communications and moving over to the software side because I had that extreme want to be like, okay, but how does the software side of this work? Like on the web and in Unity and, you know, how do we put these things together? The ops lab where I now work was looking for a visualization producer to sort of help with putting together some of these projects, help to get more people using these products and to kind of organize the teams and make sure that they were following processes that would help them move forward. And so I started in that position after about two and a half years of being in communications, which was a really organic and wonderful move for me, albeit, again, a lot of new things to learn in a new atmosphere, with new people. But I embraced that change 
very nicely because I suddenly wanted to, you know, mess around with different hardware where you could use augmented reality and virtual reality and just learn, like be confused by everything and then be educated. <laughs> and I've surely got that chance from, from the ops lab and, and my teams. Now, is it the ops lab where people can, in different parts of JPL, can walk around the rover and other things together in VR? Yes. So we focus right now on practical tools. So we do really use augmented reality more than virtual, um, primarily working with a Microsoft device called the HoloLens, which allows you to see the world around you as well as holograms overlaid on the actual world. So you can be in a room with people and not bump into each other. Um, VR, virtual reality, you are fully immersed with with tools to help you get around, um, usually instruments. In terms of you're holding something, you're not just touching the air, you know, touching what you have with your hands. We make a lot of different tools to simulate being on other planets like Mars and being able to walk around, simulating what a robot does and why it does it. So figuring out an automation, which is something, you know, when a robot makes decisions on its own, why does it make those decisions? So we work on a tool to sort of visualize what it did and why. We also, as I said, with Protospace in the beginning, in my intro, we look at these really complex models and are able to take them out of the 2D realm into the 3D realm, walk around them, use actual tools that the engineers will use to build this spacecraft and match them up to the virtual model. You can do, we have a tool that does orbital trajectories. So seeing how a whole mission will play out and how much surface it'll cover of the planet or moon it's going to be going around based on just visualizing that orbit in 3D rather than trying to to draw in 2D. So a lot of the problems that we answer are these, you know, when I'm looking something at something in 2D, it can become confusing when in 3D, explaining it to other people, as well as, you know, convincing people of what you're trying to show, it begins to make a lot of sense, specifically when you're talking about space travel, when you're talking about just spatial differences on another planet or even on this planet. So we found through a lot of research and testing that a lot of our engineers and scientists prefer to look at things in these 3D worlds. I mean, and this is a technology that is still being sort of figured out and made more accessible. I've been very happy with the amount of web-based tools that exist and tablet and phone-based tools that begin to give this this technology a little bit more of a utilitarian educational um, door open, right? Where you can, if you have a smartphone, maybe be able to use an augmented reality app. But I do think there's so much more to grow and room to sort of expand on how can we make these kinds of tools and experiences things that more people can experience and, and use in their everyday life. Before we got started, you were mentioning that there's a, an environment people have been using for education during this work from home time. Uh, yes, I would. I I love this story. So we worked on a project called Access Mars, and that was a project between JPL and the Ops Lab and Google Creative Labs. So we took an experience that is more heavy-handed that our scientists use to virtually walk on the surface of Mars together called OnSite and ported it to WebVR. 
And so in that experience, we have a wonderful scientist named Katie Stack Morgan that takes you through some really interesting sites that Curiosity has gone to and explains some of the reasons certain parts of the terrain look like they do. And it gives you the feeling of actually hopping around on Mars. And so this is as close as we could get to a web-based tool that shows you something that our actual Mars scientists use to virtually explore a different planet. And so during this quarantine time, and as so many children and so many adults and university students, everyone has to work from home together, Access Mars has had this huge uptick in usership because it's being used in virtual conferences uh, for middle schoolers and high schoolers and otherwise, and just beginning to be this tool that's more embraced than it was before. And it's been really lovely to see something that was built a few years ago be kind of have this second life and resurrection and hearing a lot of good feedback from people about how, you know, even if you get a little bored, I'm going to go walk on the surface of Mars for a second and chill out. If you're not sick of screen time, that is. It, it gives kind of a refreshing view, I think. And it it tells the story of of how a new generation of explorers can be influenced by checking something out like this and saying, hey, I'm interested in maybe the software side of building something like this, or hey, I really, I'm really interested in geology. I didn't know I could look at Mars in full scale in three-dimensional space on the web. And so my hope is that not only people are enjoying it, but they might be getting inspired in a little bit of a different way than they usually would. So for each of these shows, we put show notes that get carried into most of the spaces as well as on our website. I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of show notes of links to share people uh, from some of this stuff. Is there anything as we begin to close up that you want to make sure that someone goes and checks out after listening to this podcast? Yes, actually, there are a few things. So accessmars.com is the resource I was just speaking about. We have a 3D AR app, augmented reality app called Spacecraft 3D that's available at Android or Apple. So that lets you look at models at full scale out of, from your phone. So you can see the latest missions that we have in your own living room. And you can also start a session with your friend and kind of, it's kind of a proto space light. So looking at 3D models together and looking at how they work and looking at animations. So that's pretty fun. And then also, I had the really, really great opportunity to work on an augmented reality app with a group of women from a Smithsonian grant that we received. So Kim Arkand is the principal investigator of this app. It's called Reach Across the Stars. And it's an application of a universe of women studying different things. So you can see the backstories of a lot of women whose stories aren't necessarily told in the textbooks. And you can also dive into a few augmented reality experiences of some of these women's workflows and hear their personal stories of how they started doing what they do now. So that's a really fun application that we're still updating. And it's something that I haven't really had a chance to tell people to go download. So that should be a really fun one as well if you're if you're at home and looking for more content. And you've been part of some Emmy winning experiences? Yes, this is due to the wonderful communications team. We were so honored to, uh, JPL's actually received two Emmys. I was only first part of the first one, but I am so excited that they won two in a row. The 
The Emmy that we won was for Cassini's grand finale, which was a mission to Saturn, which was there over 20 years. And we won an Emmy for our end of Cassini grand finale campaign that we put on that included things such as 360 videos and, you know, packages for the media, live events. We had a live 360 view of mission control during the the last the last breaths of the mission. This the reason for this mission ending was that it was basically running out of quote unquote gas and we needed to have it end. And so we had to crash the mission into Saturn. Very dramatic and healthier for protecting that planet from other things that we might have built. So it's the way that NASA deals with protecting other planets so that when we go there and do more science, we don't find traces of ourselves. We wanted to protect the moons of Saturn from those things. So a really, really beautiful, just swan song of a mission. And we were honored to be graced with with our first Emmy for that for that campaign. So young Sasha, who wanted to be either a teacher or a librarian, has become a teacher through all guess- of these different things. <laughs> I guess you're right. I, I do. Wow. I'd never really thought of it that way. My mind's a little bit blown. And, and a librarian because you're finding ways to take all this information and make it available for people. So very, very cool arc. Um, It's been great watching you from the side for quite a few years and seeing all this great work. If someone wants to reach out to you, how best would they do so? And who would you like to reach out to you? I think that anyone that's looking for resources on anything that I mentioned, we do have a lot of open sourced material as well as places to sort of take things and make them your own, including downloading all the 360s that JPL has ever made, as well as other centers and being creative with them. I think the best way to reach out to me is social media on Instagram or Twitter. I am super responsive and would love to would love to see what people are working on as well. And I'll put those socials in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for, for joining us from your, your home in this virtual conversation environment. And look, looking forward to seeing you once all of this crazy has wrapped up. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. And I'm very honored to be asked to participate in your wonderful show. Thank you much. Well, that was Sasha. I love talking with her. She shares so many new ideas, but ways you can really think about how to combine things into a career, things that aren't necessarily in the same space. If you'd like to know more about our future podcasts or find the show notes we talked about, come to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. See you around the various podcast places, subscribe and share this with your friends. Until next time, Creative Innovators Podcast. I'm Gigi Johnson. Thanks for listening to Creative Innovators. We are expanding our footprint. So we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the career adventure guide content where you can take your own career and use some of the tools in the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of Creative Innovators as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists 
and, and find out where else you can find and combine with creative innovators in 2024.